Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 is printed for you inside the bulletin. We're going to focus in particular on verses 19 through 24, but we want to read this entire passage as we continue working our way through Philippians chapter 2. So whether you're using the bulletin or your own copy of the scriptures or one of the pew Bibles, I encourage you to open to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and following. It has been said that we have an attention problem. And one of the things that we need to consider as Christians is not simply the stewardship of our time, that is, how we use our time, but also, and in particular, the stewardship of our attention, what we give our focus to, what we give our time and attention to. Author and Columbia Law School professor Tim Wu wrote a book entitled Attention Merchants. And in it, he explores a modern reality of distraction sickness and where this distraction sickness came from, who benefits from it, and why it's so pervasive. And you know that you're not immune to it. This is why Netflix continues to produce new series. This is why Amazon has a streaming channel. It's not because they're just in it because they like to produce good, entertaining content. They want your attention because for them, attention equals revenue or potential revenue. The merchants on Wu's formulation are the harvesters of human attention. They create platforms, newspapers, radio, TV, websites, apps that attain commercial viability by selling the attention that they gather. If they can capture your attention and they can show, especially to advertisers, that they can get your attention, then advertisers will want to advertise with them in hopes of selling their products. Every, so many forms that are clamoring today for our attention. And as Paul continues his letter to the Philippians, he writes in a way that indicates attention matters. Attention matters. And in particular, he focuses here on the attention of Two of his co-laborers, one who has come from Philippi and one who has been and will be a longtime trusted confidant. And as Paul writes about what they give their attention to, there are questions for us about what is it? What is it that we are concerned about? What is it that has the attention of our hearts? Follow along as I read Philippians 2, 19-30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. As we consider how especially the, ver- the, the first few verses, verses 19 through 24, challenge us to consider what are our interests, our concerns. There are three observations in general that I want us to make from these verses. First, what are Paul's concerns? As he writes this letter, what has his attention What are his concerns? What does he say here about Timothy's concerns? Finally, what can we notice in light of what Paul says here and in light of the whole counsel of God, what can we notice about Jesus' concerns? Where Jesus' attention is directed. Well, let's consider how these three things, Paul's attention, his concerns, Timothy's tension, attention, and Jesus' attention, how these three things point us to where our attention as a congregation should continue to be. First, Paul's interests or his concerns or his attention. What does Paul show as he writes these letters? What does he show about what has his attention? Well, did you notice as he writes in this section of this letter, and we're picking up midstream as we've been working our way through this letter, did you notice what he says his intended itinerary is? And in this itinerary, we can see where he is focusing his attention for the good of the Philippians. Down in the second section, which we'll come to in more detail next week, he indicates that Epaphroditus, this one who has come to Paul and brought a gift from this church, Epaphroditus is the one who is now coming back to Philippi and delivering this letter on Paul's behalf. So as he writes, he sends one whom they are familiar with back to them. But as he writes out of concern for them and sending Epaphroditus because of his concern for them, that's not all that he says. Notice in verse 19, after Epaphroditus has gone and delivered the letter, what does Paul hope will happen? What does he anticipate will happen? He says that then he hopes to send his co-laborer Timothy 
to Philippi. A second emissary, if you will. Now, we don't know exactly where Paul is writing from. We know he's writing in from prison. There are a few different speculations about where he might be writing from. Most likely, he's writing from Rome at and in the time period associated with the end of the book of Acts, we don't know exactly, but as he writes, he is unable to go to them. So he is sending Epaphroditus with this letter. He plans to send Timothy. But do you notice, it seems as though he anticipates either that Timothy will send word back to him about what's going on, or Timothy will return to Paul. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He hopes to get news from Timothy once Timothy goes. But Paul doesn't just say, I'm sending you Epaphroditus. I hope to send Timothy to you soon. But he also says, I myself hope to come to you as soon as I am able. Again, he's in prison. How much longer he is in prison is not up to him. But he hopes that once he is released from prison, that he will be able to come and join or be with the Philippians. This shows, as he sends Epaphroditus, as he plans to send Timothy, wants to hear back about what's going on with them from Timothy, intends to go to them himself eventually. This shows that what is happening in their congregation is of particular concern for him. And he wants to provide care, direction, counsel to them through his letter and through these others who are faithful laborers with them. We see Paul's attention reflected in just his act of writing this letter to this congregation. But we also see his concern in the content of what he writes. And if you've been with us, this will be somewhat of review, but if you haven't been with us, perhaps this will be new for you. As Paul writes and reflects in his writing, his attention, his concerns for this congregation, one of the things that shines out throughout the four chapters of this letter is that theme of joy. We have called this series that we're working through the book of Philippians gospel joy because Paul seems to be striving to stoke joy rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ in this congregation. Notice over in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. On down in verse 25, convinced of this, that is, Paul now here saying that he is convinced that he will remain, that this imprisonment will not lead to his death, convinced of this continuance, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Notice over in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This 
letter is effusive with Paul's love for this congregation, with his joy in the Lord and his desire that they would be steadfast in joy in the Lord. But he also writes not just to stoke their joy and not just to express his own joy, but he writes for their faithfulness to the gospel. Notice back in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He is writing to help them continue in the faith, continue in proclaiming the hope and good news of Christ despite the opposition that they are facing. If you're interested, you can keep reading there in chapter 1 where Paul writes about some of the opposition that they as a congregation are facing there in Philippi. He is writing out of concern that they would remain faithful, even in the midst of what they are facing from the outside. But it is not, as we have seen, just so that they would remain faithful against what is pressing them from the outside, but also he is writing out of a concern for their togetherness for their togetherness in gospel faithfulness. That is, not only are they being pressed from the outside, but there are tensions straining from within. And he wants them to remain faithful to one another, committed, looking out, considering one another, because he knows that it is only as they hold fast together that they will remain a faithful gospel witness in the midst of the world in which they live. So as he sends Epaphroditus, as he anticipates sending Timothy, as he writes, and the subject matter about which he writes throughout this letter, Paul demonstrates that his concern and his attention as he thinks about them is that they would continue together in faithfulness as a gospel-preaching congregation there in the Roman city of Philippi. And as Paul writes, he writes as a father. He writes as a father to a church that he established, that the Lord established through his ministry. There are other letters that Paul writes as a father where he uses a strong hand. Think back to the letter that he writes to the churches of Galatia, the book of Galatians. Think about the way that he writes to that wandering church, that strained church in Corinth. So he writes 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Paul is not afraid to cut to the chase and use firm language when he knows he needs to. And if you're a parent, you know that there are times when addressing your children that appropriately firm communication 
is necessary, appropriately firm. But there is also a time when out of concern, there is tenderness that needs to be used. There is compassion and gentleness. That is the concern, that is more of the tone out of which Paul writes this letter. As a concerned parent wanting to comfort his children in their distress, but also wanting to caution them and point them in the direction of faithfulness, he writes so that they would continue to move forward together with joy. But as he writes, as a parent, out of these concerns, we don't just see his concerns reflected. He also points here to Timothy's concerns. Timothy's concerns. Just as Paul shows and writes about his own concerns, he also gives evidence to how Timothy has shown his concern and how the, this church of Philippi knows of Timothy's concerns firsthand. Notice in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He says, you know, you know the kind of man that Timothy is. You know the kind of faithfulness that he exhibits. You know because you know him. Because Timothy was with Paul when the church at Philippi was planted. Over the course of years, they have grown to know Timothy and to observe Timothy's faithfulness. But as Paul writes about their knowledge of Timothy's faithfulness as a servant, he also writes very personally, doesn't he, about Timothy's faithfulness. You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me. You know Timothy's faithfulness, and I know it. Because he has served. He has served like a son with me. Elsewhere, Paul's love for Timothy shines forth throughout the New Testament. Paul identifies Timothy in his own letters to him as Paul's son in the faith. When he wrote to that church in Corinth, one of his letters, Paul writes, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Later in his life, as Paul is seemingly about to die, he writes what we call the book of 2 Timothy to Timothy to encourage Timothy in his pastoral ministry as Paul is about to pass from this life. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he encourages him to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The pattern that you have heard from me. The example that you have seen in me. Timothy, continue in this. 
years prior as he writes to the Philippians, he says, this is how Timothy has served. Years later, as Paul is about to die, he says, Timothy, continue in this path that you are on and that you have been on. The pattern of a son to a father is somewhat lost on us. As it turns out, my father is also a pastor. Many of you know this. But I didn't grow in my knowledge and understanding of pastoral ministry by, by watching and serving under my father the way in which sons would serve as apprentices to their fathers in, first, in the first century. It was not uncommon in Paul's day that if the father was a carpenter, the son would learn the trade of carpentry. Hey, this is what happened with Jesus, right? As he, as he learned the skill of carpentry from his adoptive father, Joseph. The father was a tailor. The son would learn the practice of being a tailor from watching his father. Here, Paul is adopting that same language and applying it to Timothy to say that he has apprenticed under me and he has served faithfully with me over the years so that I can vouch for his faithfulness in ministry. And because they both knew Timothy, Paul obviously knew Timothy, the Philippians knew Timothy, it may be that as they sent their gift to Paul, to which he is responding now, they wanted Timothy to come because they knew him and they wanted to learn from him what was going on with Paul. And it may be here that what Paul is doing is he's writing to say indirectly, I know you wanted Timothy to come, and I hope to send him to you soon because he is a good and faithful brother. But Paul doesn't simply vouch for Timothy's faithfulness as Timothy is apprenticed under him, as the Philippians have known of Timothy's faithfulness, but he also writes some specific words about Timothy's concerns that are important for the Philippians. Paul writes that there is, there's no one like him. And how is it that there is no one like him? Verse 20, there is no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I don't have another partner like Timothy here with me now that I can send to you that will be concerned the way that Timothy will be concerned for your needs. Now, it doesn't seem here that Paul is trying to put down Epaphroditus or other faithful co-laborers, but Paul is particularly writing about those who are working to give Paul hardship in some way. Again, we saw that back in chapter 1. But here Paul is saying, unlike those who look out for their own interests, Timothy, Timothy will be concerned for your interest. 
and he will have genuine concern for what is going on with you. But not just genuine concern for their welfare, for what is plaguing them and their response, but notice what Paul writes in verse 21. They all seek their own interests. But then Paul makes a turn, doesn't he? He doesn't now say those others, they're concerned for their own interests, but Timothy will be concerned for your interests. He's already acknowledged that Timothy Timothy will be concerned for their welfare. But then in his follow-up statement, what does he say? The others are looking out for themselves, their own concerns, but Timothy, his concerns will be that of Jesus Christ. He says that by way of contrast. Those others look out for themselves, they don't look out for the interests of Christ. The implication, Timothy, when he comes, he won't be looking out just for what will be good for him. He will come with the interests of Christ. He will come concerned with what Christ is concerned about for you. 2 Timothy 2, 3-4, Paul writes, to Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Timothy's concern for this congregation matches the concern of his enlisting officer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Timothy comes, Paul anticipates that his coming will be like that of an older brother, concerned for the interests of his brothers and sisters. Now, older siblings are not always looking out for the interests of their younger siblings. And if you were a sibling, or you have children at home, or had had children at home, and multiple of them, you know that the siblings don't always get along. And sometimes the older siblings like to use their elder status as leverage to get what they want, as leverage to antagonize the younger among them. That's not the way that Timothy is going to come to the church at Philippi. He is going to come as an older brother concerned about what is troubling them and concerned with the concerns of their enlisting officer, King Jesus. Which raises for us, as Paul says, they all seek their own interests or concerns not those of Jesus Christ. This raises the question then, what are the concerns of Jesus for His church? What are the things that Timothy would have given his attention to when he eventually 
went to Philippi, if he did eventually make it to Philippi? Well, there are a variety of things I think that we could identify throughout the New Testament that give evidence to Jesus's concerns for his church. If you go back to the fall and where we worked through the the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, we did that in part to look at what Jesus says in those seven letters to those seven churches as those seven letters reflect Jesus's heart for his people, for his churches. And if you were to go back and read Revelation 2 through 3, there are a few things that I think would pop out. A few things that I want to identify, and I encourage you to go back, perhaps this afternoon or this week, and read those letters again and Hear, listen for these concerns of Jesus to those churches. But we see evidences of these concerns of Jesus elsewhere in the New Testament also. What is Jesus' interest, his concern for his church? Well, first, he is concerned about the defeat of sin. Jesus' concern is the defeat of sin. Not that His people would themselves defeat sin, but rather the defeat of sin that He has achieved in the giving of Himself to rescue us from our sin. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Chief among the concerns of Jesus is the scourge of sin and the necessity of His death and resurrection to rescue us from our sin. His victory over sin and death is chief among Jesus' concerns, and this is chief among Paul's concern, and I think it would be chief among Timothy's concerns because of what Paul writes. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in what? In the gospel, in the good news of Jesus' victory over death. Jesus' first concern is the defeat of sin. And closely related, Jesus' concern for His people is that they would continue to be about fighting sin in their life. The ongoing removal of sin. One book over in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. This is what Paul writes 
about Jesus's defeat and the ongoing pursuit of holiness in the life of his people. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, there's that death for sin, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. There's that past, there's the future, but there is an in-between. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Christ gave himself to defeat sin. Christ's vision and his work is for the future presentation of his people, holy and blameless, clothed in his righteousness. And in the interim, Jesus' concern is that his people would grow in fighting the temptation of sin, in growing in obeying and holding fast to him. Jesus' concern for his church is the defeat of sin that only he can and that only he has accomplished. His concern for his church is that his people would grow in opposing the drawing nature of sin in this life. Jesus' concern is that his people would know comfort and rest from the effects of sin in a fallen world. Remember that scene? Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend who had died, Lazarus. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Yes, I believe that Jesus wept in grief over the death of his friend. But more than that, as John recounts the events of that day, Jesus weeps as he looks at the mourners, as he sees on display the effect of sin in this fallen world. Jesus weeps. And Jesus also invites, doesn't he? In Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' concern is that people would know rest from the oppression of sin that can only be found in His arms, that can only be found in forgiveness through Him, that can only be found in walking with Him by faith through this fallen world. But lastly, Jesus' concern for His church is that they would address sin in their midst. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Jesus gives an extended teaching with 
multiple stories. But two in particular are important here. Jesus provides His people with instruction on how they should handle sin in their midst. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he will hear you, you've won him back. But if he won't, then go with another or two others. If he will not hear, then take it to the congregation. And if he will not hear, then he must be cast out. Jesus here is providing direction to His people for how they should strive for restoration when relationships have been fractured by sin. But then there's another story that Jesus tells in response to Peter. Peter asks this question. He says, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, about how we need to forgive and we need to have restoration, but is there a limit? How many times am I to forgive? Jesus tells that story of the unforgiving servant. And in all of these ways, Jesus, and in other ways, Jesus is telling His church that what you must do is, yes, you must rely on the fact that I am the defeater of sin. You must recognize that I am the one who want you to grow in holiness. I am the one who wants you to find comfort and rest from the weight of sin in this life. One of the ways that I want you, Jesus says, as my people to know this restoration and this comfort is how you address sin in your midst. And so I think that as Timothy would go to Philippi, as Paul writes this letter, they write with these same concerns. The concerns of Jesus to be honest about the problem of sin and to be honest and humble in their addressing of sin in their midst. What captured, I believe, Paul's and Timothy's attention? Based on what Paul writes in verse 21, the implication being that their concerns were the concerns of Jesus Christ. I think these kinds of concerns are what would have captivated their attention and what ought to captivate our attention as a church. How can we grow in holiness together? How do we respond to sin when it shows up in our midst? We respond to it by heeding and following the words of our Commander-in-Chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier this week, well now a week ago, there was a much-anticipated report that was published by a group hired to investigate reports and other questions related to sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention. If you you can Google and find that report, perhaps you have read about it, heard news reports, perhaps you've read portions or all of the 
the report. If you have questions or want to talk about that, I, I would be happy to, to sit down and, and talk with you about it, exchange emails about it. But I, I do want to acknowledge it this morning as we consider this reality of addressing sin in our midst. How should we respond to this report? Well, one, we should respond with sorrow. Sorrow that such things happen in this fallen world. And sorrow that grievously such things happen even in churches. I think our first disposition should be one of sorrow for those who have been abused. We should respond with soberness. We cannot say that could never happen here. And in soberness, it calls us to continued vigilance. That we would strive to be a safe place as a congregation. That we would have the appropriate measures in place that would severely hinder the opportunity for such travesties to take place. I use the word severely hinder because in a fallen world, it is beyond our power ultimately to prevent absolutely the intrusion of sin. But we can be vigilant and we must be vigilant. Not only must, be, must we be vigilant in striving to create a community where such things almost cannot happen. And as far as it depends on us, they cannot and will not happen. We must have resolve in any time that such an instance would arise or we hear of such an instance, a resolve that we would respond in a way that honors Christ with appropriate reporting, with appropriate care to victims, and with appropriate holding out of the hope of Christ. We should also respond to this report with gratitude. Not gratitude for the things that have taken place, but gratitude that light has been shined into darkness. And that now, we, as a collective fellowship of churches, might strive in responding appropriately. And so this should be our prayer. That we would, as a collection of churches, receive this report with soberness. That we would receive it with resolve. That we would receive it with sorrow. That we would receive it with gratitude and would strive to grow in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not seeking to hide or be dismissive of sin of any shape, but praying that the light of Christ would bring wholeness and healing 
and that we as the people of Christ would reflect the concerns of our chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to You once again, Father, we pray that as Paul writes out of concern for the Philippians, as he testifies to the concerns of Timothy for this congregation, Father, we pray that as a congregation, our concerns would be the concerns of Christ for His people. That our concerns would be to declare unashamedly the victory of Christ over sin and death. That we would proclaim that forgiveness and wholeness can only be found by turning away from sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. In falling into His arms and trusting the rescue that He has provided in His death and resurrection. So Father, I pray that if there is anyone here today who does not know the forgiveness of Christ, Father, I pray that today that they would know freedom, that they would know repentance from sin, that they would know trust in Christ. Father, I pray that we as a people would take sin seriously. Father, I pray for our convention of churches as they consider the the recommendations that have been put forward and as our cooperative fellowship considers how we ought to respond. Father, I pray that our response would not be marked by hiding, by denial, by dismissiveness, But I pray, Father, that our collective response would be one marked by grief, soberness, resolve, and gratitude as we strive to bear witness that our concern is the concern of Jesus and His victory over sin, His rescue that He provides from sin and the gift that is ours to proclaim the hope of the Savior from sin. So Father, I pray that this would be our concern as Reynoldsburg Baptist Church. I pray that this would be the concern of our fellowship of churches. Father, I pray that this would be the concern of all those who claim the name of Christ so that as Paul wrote previously, we might shine as lights in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.